Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the Cleveland.com podcast with Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and me, your host, David Campbell. Terry, big news this week. A lot of fans are upset. The Choco Taco, the Klondike ice cream product that's shaped like a taco, is being discontinued. People are upset. Are you yeah. a big ice cream guy, Terry? this I affect like, you in any way or not? I like ice cream, but I've never had a Choco Taco. I sort of like the stuff that you, you know, whether it's Dairy Queen or somewhere else but i'm pretty boring i i like chocolate cookies and cream yeah the, great. the standards the yeah standards. apparently My... you can still find these around but like klondike is apparently streamlining their uh product line uh, and this was the one that died and a lot of people love the choco taco terry i'll say no this idea. my mother-in-law ate a klondike bar probably for 50 years or more before she passed away in 2014 she loved the the classic klondike they're the best. There's no doubt about it. So so this is the part of the show where if there's any ice cream makers in town who want to sponsor the podcast, yeah. here is your opportunity. Here's your chance. All right, Terry, let's get into Browns. The Browns started training camp today. We're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lance Reisland, who is our film breakdown coach analyst, has been tweeting video of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt in the backfield together, which finally might be a – be a thing more than it has been in the past. But um, what are you expecting from training camp? I know you usually go out there for a few days. Yeah. Uh, but what, what, what are you looking to see from the Browns as they camp here? Well, in terms of the uh, Hunt and uh, Chubb, you could say it's about time. And also, this is what happens when you don't go into camp with uh, uh, Odell or Jarvis Landry. Because you're really looking for other guys that can catch the ball. And, and Kareem could do that. You could put him in the slot. You could do a lot of things with him. So, And then on top of it, David Bell, it's kind of unclear what they're doing, You know what they're saying with him. Yeah, these guys with NFL injuries, you can't believe a whole lot. So like, it's not that bad, but who knows, et cetera. And so when you start breaking down the receivers, David, all right, so, so the number one receiver is easy. Who's that? Amari Cooper. And now you have to pick number two. Well, to me, it's Donovan Peoples-Jones just because he's been here and he's proven mm-hmm. he can make some big plays, right? Are you in the same place on that? Oh, yeah. I think okay. I think Jones has a chance to be good. I still do. And then after and that, number three. yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be Bell, uh, but I don't know. I mean, he'd start going to – that's the problem. You know, they're, they're having using Felton quite a bit as a receiver. Uh, there was a, the kid from Louisiana Lafayette, and his name escapes me at the moment, who caught a few balls last year. Um, but I just think that they're going to be doing more with the running backs in in terms of, uh, you know, what uh, what they could do to get people to catch the ball. And I just really am uh, anxious to see Kareem back because they did miss him quite a bit last year. And he also was such a good uh, – uh, short yardage guy you know sometimes better a short yardage guy than uh, uh, Jamarcus Bradley was the guy I was trying to think of you know they have Jakeen Grant you know maybe maybe not you know depends how you feel about him all right I'm going to ask you about Anthony Schwartz I was ignoring it but 
it has to be mentioned. What what I think about him? Yes. So Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, interviewed him, and they got into a discussion about mm -hmm. how hard it's been for him because he was the receiver who kind of truncated his route that caused the interception that Baker Mayfield went to go make the tackle on that caused the injury that kind of upset the whole season last year. So he's had to deal with kind of the fallout from that. But uh, you know how it is, Terry, like rookies are, are rookies. And boy, you probably have an Earl, Earl Weaver quote about rookies, but yeah. I remember the old Al McGuire one. The best thing about freshmen is that they become sophomores, but mm -hmm. uh, with Schwartz going into his second year, that kind of stuff has to end. Like the quarterback has to throw the ball to where he knows you're going to be. Mm -hmm. And it can't be a 50, 50 proposition. And that little stuff, you know, when you're supposed to be on the hash, when you end your route, you better be on the hash. And if, if he cleans that up, I think he has the physical tools and he's got a year under his belt. I think the Browns think he can make some plays in this offense. How, how are you feeling about him? Well, a couple of things on Schwartz. Number one is durability was a problem last year and durability was a problem with him in college at, at, uh, Auburn, you know, he's an Olympic sprinter. So that's one. And two, he did drop some balls. Now the flip side is sometimes those guys do come around, you know, they get some good coaching, they can begin to figure it out. But so, you know, I have now the list of all the receivers in front of me. So right now you go with, you have with Cooper, number one, clearly people's Jones is number two. Um, you know, bell would be three. Um, if he's healthy, but let's, let's knock him out because he's not. You know, the old Earl Weaver line, you mentioned him. Uh, when I asked him about a player who was hurt, well, he's dead to me. And <laughs> that was the exact quote. And I'm like staring, and he knew he did that to shake me up, the Orioles manager. And he goes, look, kid, I can't play him. I don't want him dead. I want him alive. But when you sit there in my desk, as he was sitting at his desk right here, and you're making your lineup, you can't put a dead guy in the lineup. It doesn't work. So. What else you want to know? <laughs> That's what he would say. <laughs> and don't ask him to play doctor. That would be even worse. Okay, so we're taking Bell out. So you've got Cooper. You've got Peoples-Jones. You've got Schwartz, I guess, would be third. Maybe Jakeem, Jakeem Grant, although they really see he's five foot seven. They see him more as a, you know, a return guy. I do know that uh, the front office, uh, the player personnel side, does like Jamarcus Bradley some. He's back. And then I forgot about this guy. They did draft him uh, in, uh, I believe, the, the seventh round, Michael Woods from Oklahoma. So there you go. Take your pick. Six, excuse me, sixth round, pick number 202 on Woods. So it's, it's kind of thin, but that's why I believe that you're going to see Felton. You're going to see Kareem Hunt. You're going to see, I think, in preseason quite a bit of uh, Ford from uh, Cincinnati catching some balls and working out of the backfield. So they're going to do a lot of that kind of stuff. And then maybe, just maybe, the tight end friendly offense could be friendly for tight ends. Well, I'll tell you what I would like to see from the Browns. And we won't see this, Terry, until the real games start in September. But mm -hmm. and I think we've talked about this over the last several months. But the, the best three offensive players on the Browns right now are Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, and Amari Cooper. I mean, if you take mm -hmm. the quarterback out of the equation, the quarterback is going to be whoever it's going to be. And I felt like last year there were too many times where the Browns were so into their structure mm -hmm. that they didn't have their three, two or three best offensive players on the field at the, at the same time. And it, you remember when the, it was coming out of the two minute drill and Nick Chubb wouldn't be in the game. Yeah. And it's like Nick Chubb should be in and split Kareem Hunt out wide, even if he's just a decoy. Like the, you need to have threats on the field, even if they're not going to get the ball. And I think the Browns need to be as flexible as they can be. And you've written about them revamping the passing game and trying to make it more fluid and have more options and have more plugging in different guys in mm -hmm. different places. I think that's got to be, you got to find a way to get your best guys on the field at the crucial times and have things work. So where they're playing off of each other. Instead you of also could four. just fake the ball to Chubb. Yeah, absolutely. It. And they will pay attention to that. So, uh, that's that's a thing there that and they sometimes act like Chubb has the worst hands in NFL history and that's just not true. But you know, yeah, I, I get it. Like, this, yeah, go ahead, Terry. You know, I just look at this this grouping here, and but if it flips back to they just gave, you know, big money. Uh, when you look at that, they've gave big money to Chubb. 
and he gave big money to Njoku. I'm just looking at your skill position, guys. So they should be using Njoku more as a receiver for that. Now, they almost consider Harrison Bryant kind of a hybrid uh, tight end receiver type. So maybe we'll see more of him too. But, you know, this is going to be a challenge. Even with Watson, I think it's going to be a challenge for uh, Stefanski to figure out exactly what the offense is supposed to look like because they didn't like what it looked like last year. And and to say it's all Baker Mayfield is just flat out unfair. As you mentioned, some of the schematic things were other times he would be so caught up in trying to force the passing game, he ignore the running game. I don't care that the Browns threw the six fewest passes in the NFL. Uh, when your strength is running the ball, now I don't want to just you know throw 12 passes a game and run it all the time there, but you know play to your strength. All right, Terry, the big decision that is hanging over everything, and who knows, it could be being made right now and announced while we're taping here, um, is the Deshaun Watson suspension. And just to recap, everybody, the way it's going to work is Sue L. Robinson, who is the who is hearing the evidence from both sides, has heard it. She's going to make a ruling. If she instills any kind of discipline, whether it's a fine, suspension, uh, it then goes to the commissioner's office and Roger Goodell or one of his appointees can do whatever they want with that, um, raise it, lower it, whatever. If there's no discipline, then he has no recourse. If that's the decision. So I don't know if we've really, ever really gotten into this, Terry. So I, I want to kind of put you into Roger Goodell's chair for a minute. And we've, we've heard all the evidence. This has been going on for months. It's now the start of training camp. How many games, if you're Roger Goodell, Terry Pluto sitting in the chair, how many games are you going to suspend him if, if something comes to you and you get to make the final decision? I mean, the problem is, like we say, we've seen all the evidence. We haven't. We really don't know. Exact, we've see, heard a lot of what people say. We don't know a lot of what was done. Now, this may sound like a dodge or whatever, but I found this, whereas – I was very adamant on what should be done with the Houston Texans because they immediately settled 30 cases with different women. They never denied that they gave non-disclosure agreements, nor did they deny that they paid for hotel suites for uh, Watson to get these massages. A team that does that is totally out of bounds. They should lose draft choices. I would take like a second and a third or something like that. From I'd slam them. I don't want that going on because that is just flat out sanctioning you know, really bad behavior. And on top of it, having your player trying to help them cover it up. So that's team. That's easy. Uh, now, Watson, you know, you get into all this stuff. And, you know, if you read through some of those things, of course, it's stomach churning on both ends and who did what, and who said what, you know, your head just explodes. That's the harder part for me. And one of the things you do have to ask yourself is if Deshaun Watson were a Pittsburgh quarterback sitting in front of Judge Robinson, Robinson, what would you feel the, the penalty ought to be as opposed to he's a Browns quarterback? Why would they make a difference? Was because I think in terms of being a fan, you would think, you know, how could they allow this? But it's like when he's your guy, you feel differently about it. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. See, that's the thing when I get, get the mail, I've even answered a couple. Well, would you feel the same way if, if this, if Pittsburgh or uh, some other quarterback, some other team had signed him and gotten into, you know, this whole quagmire? So, you know, you don't like it. I haven't, I intentionally haven't written how many games because I can't come up with anything. I feel very uncomfortable, whereas I feel very comfortable on the Texans thing because I know what happened there. And by the way that they settled it so quickly in that, it told you. Uh, here, I just, you know, then you get into, you know, the ridiculous defense of, you know, the happy endings defense by uh, the, the lawyer for which would have been the last day that that guy would have represented me. And then you get into, you know, the a mishmash of charges and counter charges. Um, you know, I, I find it very difficult. I mean, what, this is a league that suspended um, four games for Tom Brady for flight, the flighting footballs and gave miles Garrett six games for gotten into a fight. It was on the field. Yeah. You got the helmet, but it's a fight on the field. And, you know, miles was, was kicked and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, you know, it's also a league that, uh, according to what I was told, the Browns research showed that the only people that had been suspended for a full year either were facing felonies or on gambling charges. Now, if that holds up, then he shouldn't get a full year. 
But right now you're in a whole new way of judging things. But I'm just saying there that the Watson case is really complicated. My guess that is why Robinson, the judge is still trying to sort through all this. And it's probably why she wishes the Players Association and the, and the NFL could come out of there and say, okay, we agree on 12 games or something or eight games because uh, she is probably very complicated because otherwise I think she'd have been out with something right away. No, you make some good points, Terry. And, and, and you know, I shouldn't have said we know all the evidence because obviously we don't. And thanks yeah. for clarifying that. But we know everything we're going to know until until this thing is announced. Mm-hmm. And it'll be very interesting to see if she releases the entire uh, thing of her ruling or does she just say, oh, I say nine games. Right. And I think eight or nine games, I think that's where it's going to end up. And I know everybody's just kind of guessing at that. But if you think about it, Terry, this is a decision. The, the big rock is going to fall into the ocean and there's going to be ripples that are going to happen mm-hmm. after this. There's there's the NFLPA. There's mm-hmm. the women's groups who have been very upset about this from the beginning. There are fans. There are, you know, there's Deshaun Watson and his camp. There's a lot of parties that need to feel that this was a just decision when it's over. And I think as you I guess out, they make nobody happy. So yeah, that's probably and, and, it. Right. What's maybe the old, maybe that, what's, maybe what's that's the, the old journalism saying the old yeah. journalism saying if you're making everybody upset, you're doing your job right or something. Yeah. That's probably Roger Goodell is going to have to kind of find a good middle ground there that will work for everybody. And that's why I think you're right. I think the Calvin Ridley, um, you know, who got a year of suspension for gambling on football, I think that probably would be seen as excessive. And I, I do think eight to nine games does feel about right where it would. But, it but would, what, would what we think it feels or whatever, we don't know. She's the one sitting there. That's true. And she may also have orders from the league in terms of this is how we want to view this. Not telling her what to do, but we consider this, you know, extremely serious. Or they could say, we just want you to find something that's fair. Look at some of the other rulings and come out with it. I don't know what she was told. Um, I know this. I am glad I'm not spending hours after hours, day after day, month after month, going through all the junk in this case. So yeah, how do you feel about for... Joshua Dobbs? <laughs> we found out a little bit how they feel about Joshua Dobbs today. We did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you talk about that for a second, Terry? Go ahead. Well, my guy, Josh Rosen, is finally a Brown. You know, I wrote that. How he was my number one quarterback in the, in the 2018 draft when I rated him. Um, it was Rosen one, Allen two, Baker three. Um, I didn't like Darnold at all. Darnold Jackson, I basically said I thought there were three quarterbacks in the draft. So I was really wrong because I just dismissed Jackson out of hand um, as an athlete, et cetera. Um, I fell in love with Rosen because he, he really, if you go back and look at him, UCLA, he threw a pretty ball in that. Uh, I did not like Darnold because he had a tremendous amount of turnovers, not just interceptions. You look at how many fumbles he had back at USC. Um, so you go through all that, but today uh, – Kevin Stefanski said that, you know, as of now, uh, Joshua Dobbs is ahead of Rosen. Of course, Rosen just got here. That's why. But, you know, Rosen's been, I think this is fifth team. Uh, there's a reason that he's been bouncing around. Yeah, and, and, you know, remember when he was coming out of UCLA, Terry, that he didn't have the best reputation as being a good teammate. There was a lot of no. you know, people put pictures on social media. I think he had a hot tub in his dorm room and yeah that, and know, sort of whatever being kind of kind of distant yeah well the other he, the he, other thing with him he did have a, a significant history of concussions and so but i remember watching the game that kind of sold me on rosen is uh he played against uh darnold and i watched this game and usc had like twice the talent ucla did rosen kept it close his guys were dropping balls jumping off sides and he's hanging in a pocket. He's taking hits and he's making good throws and really Darnold should just pick them apart and all that. And he had a good game, but nothing like what he should have. And then if you remember when Darnold played against Ohio state, uh, he got crushed. Uh, so that was there, but you know, I liked, I liked Allen because one, I have a Wyoming hat on. I've always been partial university of Wyoming ever since, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Larry Shiat from Cleveland, became head basketball coach there. And I also like Wyoming as a state. So um, I did pay attention to the guy. I thought, you know, this guy, like, 
they got an NFL style quarterback at Wyoming. He's playing under center. They're running an NFL type offense because this is the same coach who also had Carson Wentz at North Dakota State. So he ran, you know, a pretty good offense with that. But I don't think maybe Buffalo thought Allen was going to be this good, but I doubt it. I think they just wanted somebody who's decent. And so that's a it's gonna be fun to still see how it all plays out. But yeah, Joshua Dobbs is three, Rosen's four. Brissett starts, we wait. All right. And uh, you know how it is, Terry. We see this in sports all the time, but sometimes a guy coming out of college or when he's young thinks he's the, you know, the world's gift to whatever position they play. And when and it takes 25, 26, 27, and they've been through things and, and mm-hmm. they find out that this is a business and they got to put I'd, in the I'd work. like and to go maybe, back. Maybe I he's in that stage. I don't yeah. know. It'd be fun to have. In fact, maybe that's something for uh, your football writers. You are there to have them go through. Find somebody like Rosen, who was, say, picked in the top 10, bounced around for three or four years, and then suddenly became a starter and did pretty well somewhere. No one comes to mind for me. Uh, The one who's coming to mind for me immediately, but he hasn't done it yet, is Mitch Trubisky. But Mm -hmm. that would be a good example. If he's able to win the starting job in Pittsburgh and hold it and do some things there, he's – some people mention Ryan Tannehill, but he started quite a bit with Miami. I mean, I'm talking about a guy. He started 13 games, I think, his first year. Uh, Rosen did, um, and then he yeah, was three and ten. Has more than that, so right. But, and uh, then he started yeah. a couple of games after that, and was a disaster. Uh, so we'll see. But I want there might be somebody out there. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to check into that. So, all right, Terry, you want to move into the Guardians a little bit? Sure. Here? All right, let's do it. So the trade deadline is coming up next week. Guardians coming out of the all-star break are 49 and 47. They're two and a half games behind the twins. They had a big win in Boston last night. Uh, You've been doing a little bit of reporting. And I I think you, in your column that will, that will appear tomorrow, you've been writing about the guardians trying to thread the needle, which is what they say when they're trying to stay in contention and not mortgage the future, but still contend. Uh, and you're hearing some interesting names, including Oakland catcher Sean Murphy as someone who might be on their radar heading into next week's trade deadline. Yeah, there, you know, stuff like Juan Soto or whatever, that's not going to happen. Um, you hear Brian Reynolds from the Pits, the Pirates, but I think that's less likely. The one position they do need help, and fans have been crying about this justifiably for the last couple of years, is catcher. Because the it's a position where people don't hit to begin with. Last time I looked, the average major league catcher was batting like 218. But, of course, that would be like a 30-point improvement or more for the Guardians. I don't know what these guys are hitting. We'll look it up in a moment. And I heard for months they really like Sean Murphy from Oakland. Furthermore, Oakland not only is kind of looking to move guys, they have a couple of catchers in AAA they really, really like. So it's not like um, – and Murphy fits the profile, you know, he won't be a free agent until 2026. Um, He's a right state product. He's 27. He won a gold glove last year. Remember the catcher that they would trade for has to be really good defensively. They consider it a defensive position. You know, this year he's hitting 244, 747 OPS with 11 homers. I mean, that makes him sound like Johnny Bench in his prime compared to what we've been watching. 24 (laughs) doubles. I mean, he's just a really good player. So uh, it also fits what I was told. If the, if the uh, Guardians make a big deal, it would be for a guy like that with several years of team control, the right age where they could have him not just – they don't – I'm not saying – no, do they care about making a big run this year? No, they don't. They'd like to do it with the roster they have, but they're not going to try and just bring in some guys to, to uh, you know, hold the fort. And, and just at, then see where they're at. No, they, they're looking down the road. So that's why Murphy, I think, is going to be a main target for them. Of course, for other teams, too. Everybody, you know, like half of the league or more needs a catcher. But the, the thing that helps, you know, the Guardians have a lot of prospects. Uh, and the nice thing that I like about the Murphy thing is they would not have to trade Bo Naylor in that. Who, and Naylor, you know, he's 22. That's Josh's brother. And he's his first couple of years – uh, he struggled. He's a first-round pick in 18, 
But, you know, this year between double A AA and triple A, he's at 283 with a 944 OPS, 10 homers. He, he walks a lot. He's a good defensive catcher. So when you start thinking about Naylor and Murphy, that changes the whole dynamic of that position. It also means you don't have to hand 23-year-old Josh Naylor the starting job in spring training because they put a lot on their catchers. It would make a lot of sense, Terry, and, and they are. They're kind of buying time until mm-hmm. Naylor can come up. And, and Murphy, you talked about the team control. Uh, he would elevate the stats and everything. So uh, moving away from catcher, Brian Reynolds of the Pirates is another name you've been hearing. I've heard that Outfield. forever with, with them. And he's, you know, he's under team control for a couple of years with the Pirates, I think three more years. But as I was talking to some people, it's like, you know, it used to be Cleveland desperate for outfielders. But I don't think that's the case anymore because, you know, Stephen Kwan, we've kind of said this, you know, he's had a really good year. I mean, here's, you want to win some money? Who has the uh, best on-base percentage on the Guardians? Is it Stephen Kwan? Yeah, because I thought for sure it was Jose. He's actually higher now than Jose. And he's hitting 295. He's got more walks than strikeouts. He plays a good left field. Um, he took care of the leadoff spot. I mean, that's set. Miles Straw is a career 250 hitter. Now, I know he's, he's had a miserable year. He started to hit in July, but, you know, he's an elite center fielder. So you're really looking at right field. And now here come the guys, you know, Nolan Jones, Oscar Gonzalez, those two. And then in the minors, Will Benson and my guy, Will Brennan, who, let's see, where is he right now? Will, Will, what are you hitting? Come on, tell me the truth. You are hitting 328. And you only have 79 RBIs in 84 games. So you got you have Will Benson. It's another guy, AAA. You have you have Will Benson. You have Will Brennan. And you have Gonzalez. And you have Nolan Jones. And by the way, they've just started playing Will Benson at first base in the minors. And I my theory is Nolan Jones could end up be there. So I think between those spots, you're kind of fixing an outfield first base. So I if they make a big deal you know, where they're giving up some of their key pitching prospects or stuff like that. Uh, not Gavin Williams, you know, not Espino, but I'll tell you this, Espino has not been able to get healthy this year. I, I you know, I'm going to so say fast, too. He started. So I fast. hate high school pitchers drafted in the first or second round. They just get hurt. And even McKenzie, who was drafted high, you know, it took him several seasons. Now, at least he didn't have Tommy John. But remember, he would hurt his arm and this and that. It just seems as though it's a very difficult thing. I remember I said this to somebody with the the old Indians organization back then, and, and they're kind of going through the head, go, well, um, well, what about CC Sabathia? I said, fine. We got to go back to the last century. There's your guy. There's CC Sabathia. Jarrett Wright, maybe, you know. Uh, but really, they they just don't last very long. And that's why, you know, I maybe mean, that's why they're so careful with the Spino. They have Logan T. Allen. Um, they have several of those guys that would be attractive. See, Oakland wants prospects. Uh, so that would be – that's why I just think the thing makes a lot more sense uh, for Murphy. It's a bigger need than uh, bringing Brian Reynolds in for the outfield. So, Terry, it seems like things are really congealing here with all these guys who can play the outfield and they're moving some of them to some reps at first base. Mm-hmm. The guy that we haven't talked about who's kind of could be the odd man out here, and we mentioned this a little bit last week, was Fran Mil Reyes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you want wa- him? watching the game Sunday, he is he's battling to f- the strike zone so hard. Like his his pitch selection just doesn't seem like it it's been in the past. And I know they asked him to lose some weight, but but the Guardians had a chance in su- Sunday's game against the White Sox to score some runs. He swung at a bad pitch grounded into a double play and, and barely got beat out at first base on the throw to first. And I know they've been wanting him to lose some weight. And all I could think of was, oh, if he just would have dropped those 10 pounds, he might've beaten that grounder yeah. and not had the double play. But maybe we can run through a few guys, but will Framil Reyes be with the guardians on August 3rd? You think he'll be here or not? For his sake and the team's sake, I hope not. Cause he really has gone down. Um, in estimation by there and his teammates, you know, this is a hard driving team, David. They run hard to first base. They play hard. They always don't always smart, but I mean, the, you know, keep 
as Francona keeps saying, they keep playing. You know, the leaders on the team, because uh, they don't have too many older guys, are Jose and are Ahmed Rosario. And those guys just bust their butt all the time. And they look at Reyes, and they don't see that. The other player I was talking to somebody very close that said they don't see it in Reyes. They see a guy who got kind of fat and just sort of there, and now Reyes is swinging at pitches. You know, look, you get two strikes on the on him, throw the ball about a foot outside, he's going to swing at it. He's, he's making up his mind early, which means he doesn't have confidence. He's going to get around on the fastball. He's guessing. So uh, I think they'd love to get rid of him. Uh, I don't know what his market value is, but you might be able to find somebody just to take him for the rest of the year and say, hey, he's hit 30 homers a couple times. Well, and if not, I wonder if they might do the Oscar Mercado thing where they DFA him and see who takes him if they can't get anything for yeah, him. Yeah, maybe it's somebody claim- – And you've been talking about this, Terry. They need to find at-bats for guys, and they need to find time at first base for guys. And, mm-hmm. and DH, those, those are valuable – things on this team right now and yeah it makes you wonder if they're going to do the same thing so and um, also you want you don't want josh naylor i think in the field five and six days a week it's remarkable he's playing it all i mean that was a career-threatening broken leg fractured tibia all kinds of stuff he's got more uh i forgot how many screws and plates are in that foot and in leg it's a lot and you would want him maybe half the time DHing, half the time first base or something like that and so that's um but now he's another one. He plays like every game. His life is on the line. See, that's the whole culture of that team. Fran Mill is not doing that. It's not because uh, maybe it's because he's not hitting, he's pouting, but it just doesn't fit what they're doing. All right. Next on my list after Fran Mill, Shane Bieber, Terry, you, you've mm-hmm. been uh, writing about uh, Jeff Passan of ESPN that Shane Bieber is available but it's going to take a lot, a lot, a lot to get him out of Cleveland. Uh, will Shane yeah, he said Bieber the price is exorbitant. And if you're will the price there? is ex- exorbitant, well, there's a lot of guys on that team you could probably get for an exorbitant price. Jose is not one because he has a no trade. Um, that would be interesting to see. I mean, I wouldn't be totally shocked. I could not believe it at all if Bieber were traded. But I think it makes more sense if you're thinking about dealing him down the line to – uh, wait until the offseason. He still has two more years of team control. Interesting thing about Bieber, they've made him offers in the past for extensions. By the way, pitchers, this is another one of my theories, like a high school pitcher thing, stay away in the high rounds. Generally, pitchers, when you are offered that first extension and you're a younger pitcher, take it because of the injury thing. I don't think Carlos Carrasco ever regretted taking that contract extension. I don't think Corey Kluber regretted taking his contract extension. And I do know Clevenger was offered something like 35 million or more a few years ago, and he turned it down. I don't think he, I think he regressed that. And because almost all these guys end up with some type of injury and then they have plenty of time to come back. And the other thing, when you're on a long-term contract and you're a pitcher and you're coming off of, an injury, you don't rush yourself back because uh, you're not playing for your paycheck. So I really believe that uh, uh, that that's so that's one factor. But he's turned them down a couple times. Bieber. Has. Secondly, Bieber is represented by the Drew Rosenhaus Agency, and they hired a guy whose name escapes me at the moment to run their baseball thing, and he he is a Scott Boros disciple. And you know that's the Darth Vader of baseball agents. You know, Boros is the guy that turned down over 400 from Watch, 400 million from Washington for Juan Soto because he wants 500 million. So this is probably not going to end well in terms of an extension. That's why you can't ignore the fact that it's a possibility they could move Bieber. And, you know, and Bieber is throwing 90, 91 miles an hour compared to 94 Cy Young Award winner. I don't think he's hurt, David, but I do believe. You know, he missed three months last year with the shoulder thing. I think he's being um, trying to find a real comfort level for throwing with that arm. Now he's Going still for good. Longevity like instead of uh, yeah. trying to yeah yeah. And that shakes you, and and it shakes you up a little bit. You know when that happens, and then you look, you turn around, and you know, there's Savali. He can't get healthy. I forgot what is a glute injury. I forgot what he has yep, now. Yeah, his gluteus. But before yeah, before that, there. then he had the finger. Oh no, it's a wrist. He has a wrist. That's All the right, problem. Well, when there's too many injuries and body parts to mention, 
<laughs> you know you have issues. So. Yeah. All right, Terry, so t- yeah, fifteen seconds. Uh, okay. We talked last week about Ahmed Rosario, and he's just so important to what this t- team is. If they were to move him, it would damage more than you'd be losing more than just a player here. You'd be losing kind of an important part of the culture. And so he'll be here, right? I think so. Unless that would turn around where you're trading him and Bieber and there's some other huge thing coming back. It would be something like that. But otherwise it is. I mean, I was just told by a top executive from Cleveland that we consider him an extraordinary cultural fit for the team and a very good major league player. And I agree on both. You know, and his defense is short has improved this year. I was down on his defense last year, but he's average. And I was looking kind of at some of the analytics. He's in the middle of the pack there. But I just, you you know, Frank Cohen always talks about playing a game the right way or whatever. Well, when you have those guys doing that, you know, when you go at the top of the lineup and you have Quan and you have Rosario and you have Jose and you have Naylor batting fourth, I mean, these are guys that you really – and how about – and you talk about things, you know, the big plan. Let's see if uh, Jimenez can play. Yes, he can. He's become an all-star second baseman. He can play short, he can play second. You know, let's see what you've got with um, – uh, with Naylor, you know, they didn't talk a lot about that, but they were hoping, you know, Naylor's a hitter, you know, Naylor can help you. Let's see what they got with Quan. You've got a leadoff hitter. You don't see what you got. You don't find those out unless you play them. Owen Miller is still sort of in the middle of oh, what is he, you know? And then you saw uh, Bobby Bradley didn't work. Yu Chang didn't work. Oscar Mercado didn't work. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some others, but those are some quick ones there. Um, by the way, Brian LaVista, remember he was supposed to be a prospect? His, yep. He's just like falling off the map. He's like down in double A. He's at like La, La this year. right? Lavastida, yeah. Yep. And boy, he's really struggling. That's another reason I went back to Sean Murphy. That's the area of need. All right. So trade deadline is on Tuesday, uh, August 2nd, I believe that is. But I don't know my calendar in front of me, but uh, we shall see how that all shakes out. Terry, we've got to take a break. Uh, when we come back, let's kind of bring some closure to your three-part Jim Donovan uh, column package that you had last week, and we'll get into your faith column a little bit. We'll answer some Hey Terry questions, and we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, uh, we got some really great response last week to your three-part columns, three-part column series on Jim Donovan, the voice of the Browns. Uh, I just want to read a couple of them. This one's from John S. He says, hey, Terry, just read the last of the three installments on your articles on Jim Donovan. I never knew too much about Jim because I relocated to California in 1978 and have to listen to the national announcers when I watch the Browns telecast. I'm a cancer survivor myself, but my treatment treatment was minuscule compared to what Jim had to endure. A very inspiring story, and my hat is off to Jim and his family. I'll be looking at him in an entirely different light here and after, knowing what a brave and courageous man he is. Cleveland has had a lot of misfortune on the field of play, but boy, have we been blessed with some fabulous announcers. And listening to some of Jim's calls on YouTube, he definitely belongs in the company of Gib, Nev, Joe, Tom, Fred, etc. I actually go back to Jimmy Dudley. Thanks, as always, for your stellar writing. That's from John S. Uh, thanks for writing that in, John. Uh, Terry, you got a lot of great response to that last week, and uh, you kind of did it in three parts, two parts about Jim Donovan's story, and the third part about his battle with cancer, and um, you want to talk for a minute about kind of what you heard from people after that? Well, the background is interesting, because I wasn't sure exactly where I was going with it, other than I wanted something that didn't have Deshaun Watson before training camp, something that, you know, people could read it and feel good or whatever, and then I realized... I didn't know much about Donovan's background. I learned he's from Boston. And then I went on the internet and I still didn't find much about Donovan's background. Other than he's from Boston. So I called up Jimmy. I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to come over. I want to write something on you. And I was just kind of thinking one story at that point. Well, we sit there and he lives uh, in a south- Southwestern suburb and on 12 acres, they got a barn. They got a couple of horses, he and his wife, Cheryl. And they're just kind of sitting on the porch. There was a nice day. And, and, I got him talking about growing up in Boston, you know, his early career. And it's like, I've never heard any of this. And so that became, you know, the story number one, you know, the little kid at 12 years old sitting at a Boston Bruins game with a cassette tape recorder doing play by play next to his dad. And, um, and then 
then I didn't realize, I always sort of thought he was a TV guy. I did not realize that his goal in the beginning of life was radio. And St. Cloud, Minnesota, I love he said, on Broadcast Magazine, he said, the home of one of five, America's five great radio stations. He goes, I'm excited. There's a one ad that says St. Cloud, Minnesota. He goes, so I had to check the map to see where one of five great radio stations is located. And he sort of got the job out of a magazine. You know, he went there and they hired him. And he spent two years there doing hundreds, literally hundreds of sporting events, living in some guy's basement because he was making no money. For Then he went to um, Vermont, to Burlington, up on Lake Champlain. And uh, there, towards the end, he started doing some TV, but he did like, the, there were the Vermont Reds. They're now the Akron Rubber Ducks, by the way, if you trout where that team went. And he did St. Michael's um, College Basketball. He did a bunch of high schools. So it's a total of seven years between St. Cloud and Vermont before he got a chance to come to Cleveland. And the way he was discovered was there was an agent who was just looking at some tapes of actually somebody else on the same TV newscast as Jim. And he took her on as a client. And then he called Jim, said, you mind if I kind of uh, market you around? And he ended up getting Jim an interview in Cleveland, and they hired him. He came in as a weekend guy. That was 1985. Think about that. He's been in the market since 85. That also surprised me. And then so then we went to, you know, he didn't get the Browns till 93. But his goal always was play-by-play local. You know, he did. I forgot about the fact that he did regional NFL games for NBC. And so that whole part of the story is very interesting to me, too. I'm always kind of fascinating. But how do people get to where they are? Yeah, and the thing I think we talked about this last week is just – play-by-play was so important to him doing radio Mm play-by-play of all the tv stuff he's done it was always about getting a radio play-by-play gig with a team that he would really just love doing and it's uh it's great to see someone who sitting sitting at boston bruins games doing hockey if you boy and if you can do hockey you can do any sport because it moves so fast but uh i'm sure that trained him well and actually that's probably his favorite sport but like all great broadcasters and I've, I've gotten to know several. Joe Tate and I were close friends. Tom Hamilton, in fact, I was talking to Tom Hamilton today. Uh, we're close friends. Uh, Nev Chandler and I were very close, um, those three especially. And the thing that you discover when you talk to them, and Jimmy is the same thing, is they like sports, but they love broadcasting. The different events that they love broadcasting. It's just like, David, I like sports, but I love to write. Um, I get more excited about, for example, putting Jimmy Donovan's story together and making sure I could tell that story the right way, which then broke into three parts because I suddenly realized I had so much, as opposed to you know, sitting there looking at tapes of the Browns and trying to break down the X's and O's. You know, Other people are better at that than I am. But the best writers, the best play-by-play guys, set the scene. They're storytellers. You know, it's like you were handed a coloring book. So you have the outlines of whatever picture it is, you know, a boat with a lighthouse in the background and water. But you color it in. You know, now you, if you're doing your job, you don't pretend that the boat on the water with the lighthouse is really a tiger, you know, chasing a hyena through the jungle. No, you don't do that. <laughs> You've given the outlines, but to make that picture look like something, you color it in the right way. And I always say 80% and and it's like Tom Hamilton was talking about uh, Donovan. And he said that, uh, and he's been through both the good and bad. And he said, the tough thing for Jimmy is year after year of bad teams, decade after decade. He said, when you have a really good team or you have a contending team, those broadcasts almost do themselves. But, you know, you're three months into the season and it's going nowhere. Um, and you really have to push yourself to be enthusiastic but not be stupid. You know, you, you can't be blind to what's going on. And that's the other thing that you see from Jimmy and you saw from Joe Tate, you see from Tom Hamilton, um, I think it was Andre Knott told me, he said, you can listen to them about five or 10 minutes in the game and out here in the score. And you got kind of an idea how it's going for their local team. Yeah. And Jim Donovan, like all the great ones, Terry, they know when to talk, but they also know when not to talk. Mm-hmm. And, and Jim's had to go back and forth from TV to radio. And he always, the, the timing is just impeccable. So 
so listen, check out that three-part series if you haven't read it already. Already, it's definitely worth your time. So, all right, Terry, we're running a little short on time. I want to move to your faith and you column for this week. You write about uh, the dark night of the soul. The headline is "Where do we go during the dark night of the soul?" That column will be on Cleveland.com on Saturday, and then in Sunday's Plain Dealer. And you kind of wrote about um, some tough days you went through with your father, and kind of what came out of that for you personally. Why don't you share that for a moment? Well, the, the dark night of the soul is a phrase from a, uh, a monk and uh, a priest, and now a Catholic saint called St. John of the Cross. It also has popped up in a lot of other things in literature. Uh, I remember th- I found a, a phrase from a Scott Fitzgerald who said, uh, the darkest nights of the soul are when it's 3 o'clock in the morning, day after day. You know, it just kind of drags on. And I would talk about how when I was taking care of my father and uh, he had had a stroke and his very tough breathing late at night, he would just stare at me. We're just trying to get through the night. You know, you realize, uh, at least in my case, it, it didn't matter how many books I'd written or awards I'd won or that I was a sports writer. We're just trying to, he's dealing with congestive heart failure. He had a stroke, it just he's scared. Um, and then you literally are looking, you know, life and death issues in the eye. You know, what does that do? The dark night of the soul. So uh, that started, actually, it, that idea came out of a conversation I had with a pastor from uh, Cleveland Heights. His name is Keith James. And we were talking about different things. And he said, you know, there's one of his favorite stories in the Bibles where Jesus gives a tough sermon and all these people leave instead of usually, you know, they, they, were like, they didn't like what he was talking about that day. And Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter, one of the disciples, looks up and says, uh, no, Lord, where else would we go? And that's kind of when you're in the dark night of the soul. That's your question, where else do you go spiritually? And, you know, there's a lot of people going to all kinds of escapism and things. So that's where the column came from. And I granted it's it's not a boy. Well, that's that's really exciting. I can't wait to read about the dark night of the soul. But I do think with most of us are on it, are honest. We have been in one, are in one or might end up in one. Because that's life. Yeah. And one of the one of the quotes that really stuck with me, too, Terry, was um, and I, I forget who said this, but it was that God is in the pain with you mm-hmm. and that you that that you're not alone at those times that it, that something will come out of it in the end that will change you because of it. And yeah, T.S. Eliot said that in one of his uh, poems. And also Father Tom Heron uh, mentioned that too. So, Really good stuff. Um, catch that this weekend. Terry's Faith and You column. There's always uh, something in there that will resonate, and so give it a look. So, All right, we've got a few Hey Terry questions to close. Terry, you ready? Mm-hmm. Here we go. All right. Hey, Terry, this is from Steve Schaefer. Why is Shane Bieber still here? Isn't Cleveland required to trade away Cy Young Award winners? We, you were kind of joking about this earlier, but uh, yeah, we yeah. mentioned that earlier. They were, but it actually got me kind of looking. Well, whatever happened to the other Cy Young Award winners, and what did they get for them? Well, well, the guy that closed out the All Star game was one. They got him for Corey Kluber, and then they, when they traded um, CC Sabathia, actually the key player in the trade was supposed to be Matt Laporta, and he ended up having a major hip uh, injury. His career was cut short. But the player to be named later in that deal was, David? I can't remember, Terry. Michael Brantley. Oh, that's right. And see, that's exactly it. Who played her 10 years. And, and Matt Laporta actually had a little bit more fanfare, if I remember. He was oh, yeah, he was the guy. A, a big power hitter and yeah. injuries, and he never really quite found. That's why I, yeah. I was having trouble coming up with Michael Brantley, yeah. Michael Brantley ended up saving the trade for him, really, because otherwise it would have been a disaster. Um and there were a couple other guys in the deal, not even worth mentioning. And then the third Cy Young Award winner they traded was Cliff Lee. And they got a bunch of guys from Philly. But the main one was Carlos Carrasco, who pitched there for 11 years. Carrasco won 30 more games with Cleveland than Cliff Lee did for the rest of his career. And that's why, now, when I see maybe the Guardians may end up trading Bieber, I have a fair amount of confidence. Now, granted, some versions of the front offices made different, uh, made those trades, but they all were. Chris Antonetti was involved with them all early on. He was the assistant to Mark Shapiro. Those were the trades that brought Carrasco and Brantley in, and then he himself made the trade for Class A. And when they're all made, you go, "That's all they got." 
every single time. You say that's all they got. You look at, by the way, Lee was traded a couple other times after that, and you look and see what uh, was those teams brought back. They would have loved to have gotten Carrasco. And by the way, um, when they traded Sabathia, that was with a half year left. And the word was already out the Yankees were going to break the bank for him. Milwaukee traded for him, and they just did it to make the playoffs. And CC actually pitched every fourth day instead of fifth and pitched him into the playoffs. And then he signed for zillions of dollars with the Yankees. So uh, that's, that's kind of how that played out. All right. It's, it's like every time the Guardians make a trade, you could do a lineage. It's like tracing the Herschel Walker trade between the Vikings yeah, and the Cowboys. Keeps... It just goes on and on and on. Some of these. Right. I mean, if you, if you just want to, you know, you kind of keep going and, um, and, you know, Carrasco was part of the trade along with Lindor that went to the Mets that brings Jimenez and Rosario here. So. That would make a great graphic sometime. Let's see if we can get that together. So, all right, last one, Terry. This is from Greg Arbogast. He says, hey, Terry, are the Browns waiting on the Watson news before going all in for this year? Seems like a lot of money is on the table that could be spent. And uh, and you've written this, Terry. The, the Browns are $48 million under the cap for this season. Why don't you talk about the salary cap real real quick? It is, it is convoluted, and, and why don't you explain why they are where they're at? And secondly, the the, the – Next team with the most cap room is Dallas with 22 million. Dallas rarely, by the way, is, is that much under the cap. They're usually always fighting to get under the cap. Part of the reason they are is they got rid of Amari Cooper, by the way. Uh, that was a cap move. So the thing that you have to remember about the NFL is you can take your excess cap room and roll it over to the next season. Because right now, I believe the Browns are something like 28 or 30 million over the cap in 2023 because that's when Watson's contract kicks in because when they sign these guys to these extensions they make it real cap friendly the first year um, and then after that it balloons I mean next year Watson counts 56 million on the cap so that Miles Garrett is next year too right Miles Garrett is next year and Batonio and Chubb Denzel Ward they're all big money so, and Cooper, if they keep him, Cooper's contract's a little funky. They may be able to get out of it, but the idea being that um, they want to roll that into next year so that they don't have to turn around and start cutting guys because they're already way over. And that's, that's the main reason. Now, that still gives them some room if they want to do something this year, but that doesn't mean they're going to go out and spend $20 million of that on somebody. No, I, I would be shocked if they did that. Yeah, and, and even who would be left? Most of the, the guys who are worth money are gone, and it's it's mostly guys that are kind of just hanging around yeah. to fill holes. So, um, all right, Terry, thanks for those. Hey, if you want to drop us a, a Hey Terry question for the podcast, you can send it to sports at cleveland.com and just put Hey Terry in the subject line, uh, or you can go to Terry's Facebook page, and he will catch you there. So. All right, Terry, um, I think you're going to be doing some hiking next week, so we'll see if we can get a podcast together, but we'll, we'll see how things are going. You're going to be hiking, right? It's your, your annual hiking. Yeah, we're going up to the Upper Peninsula, so that's where we'll be for awesome. about 10 days. All right, we'll see if you can find any Chaco Tacos while you're out there, and <laughs> you can sell them on eBay or something because they're going to be that, nice. Maybe a white, they have whitefish tacos up there. Oh, that sounds good. Whitefish is big in Lake Superior. It's very good. So I will eat any kind of fish tacos. Those are always good. So and then you can have a choco taco for dessert. So uh, we have a great time with these and we appreciate you listening. We will catch you next time. Uh, Very talking.